Hi, good morning. And thank you musicians uh, for leading us into a time of worship. And as I look around, uh, I see that half of the church is missing. And I take comfort by the fact that it's not the speaker, uh, that we have a holiday tomorrow. I'm hoping that's the case. All right, so it's good to have all of you here. Uh, nice to see you, Robin. And welcome. It's really nice to have uh, someone who has been with us for so long back here in Hukunui. And also, Robin. All right. Welcome to, to Hukunui. Uh, the last act of Gary before he left was giving me this particular passage uh, to speak on, which is uh, the adultery of uh, David and Bathsheba, as well as Nathan's rebuke. So today's passage would be uh, on 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. Uh, so it's a topic that deals with sexual immorality. And in fact, I grappled with this topic for quite some time, whether I should water it down or fully engaged with the topic. So I thought that I'll fully engage with the topic. All right, I'll go for it. And since the Sunday school is not here, I'm sure it's PG rated 16 plus, <laughs> right? Well, see, one thing that we need to understand is that the Bible warns us of sexual immorality. But yet we know that the scripture, all that tells us and warns us of sexual immorality, that the society takes it so lightly to the extent that we know it's even glamorized. And sexuality is glamorized in the society today. So, in summary, we actually live in a very sexualized society. If you read uh, the content that comes in magazines, if you listen to even advertisements, TV, social media, it always has some sexual connotation. And that's the society that we are living in today. And please understand that sexual immorality Sexual sin affects everyone, right? It's not only the young. It affects the young, the old, the rich, the poor, even godly men and women, right? And recently we have heard of uh, uh, the sexual sin of one of probably the most famous modern-day apologists, right? Ravi Zacharias, we've heard of him. A godly man. We also heard of the sexual immorality of Bill Gates, Right? Probably one of the richest and the most famous man in the world, the founder of Gates Foundation. So it affects everyone, irrespective of your standing in a society. Now, this picture I have is a view from the rooftop of uh, David's palace. Right? Um, it's a picture that I took from the David's palace. And if you look at it, you can see actually the houses that are uh, beneath. Right? Now, one of the things you must understand in the olden days, in the time of David, that many of these houses actually belong to important officials of David's administration. So it's possible that Bathsheba and her family were well-connected top officials in David's administration. Right? And if you look at the scriptures, you could. Now this is just, uh, I can't say it with certainty, but people possibly say that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahitophel, right? Remember, Ahitophel was one of David's counselors. Of course, he defected to uh, Absalom. Uh, when Absalom went and tried to usurp the kingdom, 
But many say that uh, uh, Bathsheba was possibly Ahithophel's granddaughter. Now, it is from this vantage point, vantage point, that unfortunately David cast his eyes on Bathsheba when she was taking a bath. And by the way, uh, last week, I think, no, two weeks ago, Andrew Linton was talking about names and how names are attached and has some meaning. And someone once told this to me that actually the name of this woman was Sheba. And the reason why she was called Bathsheba was because she was taking a bath, right? Now, that's just a joke. I don't think it's real, right? But that's just, just connection with uh, Andrew Linton's message. Right? Now, one thing I need to make sure that we all understand is sexual sin, sin often starts with a lingering look. Right? Giving attention to something that arouses someone uh, sexually. And this was no different to King David, even regarded in the scripture as a man after God's own heart. Now, one thing I'd like to point out to you is the real, real danger of sexual arousal. Right? And as I said, I'm not going to water it down. Right? A real danger of sexual arousal. Now, one of the interesting things that I read, right? I, I tend to read all of these psychology type of papers. And one of the things that I've read very interestingly was that the depravity of unchecked human nature. In the year 2001, two psychologists, quite famous psychologists, conducted a study in the University of Berkeley, California, involving sexual arousal and moral decision-making. Right? This was a very, very interesting study. Now, what they found out was this, that when individuals are in a cold, rational state, you mean, you know what I mean by that, a cold, rational state, they often took a very high moral ground when it comes to decision-making. They were more morally aware. They were more morally sensitive to situations. They were very much present, right? So they took a moral high ground when it comes to decision-making. So they understood themselves. They were in control of their impulses, their preferences. However, the interesting point of this research is when they were sexually aroused, they lost all sense of control and morality. And that's what that research found. And they were not able to predict their own passion and their own decision-making. They found through the study that such people were even willing to engage in acts that even horrifies rational human being. They had a greater tendency to engage in such acts. Now, that's how powerful sexual arousal is. That it completely, completely takes away rationality from your mind. Now, there, was a, there is a wise man in this church. Now, he knows uh, when I say this. He said to me this. Right? Now, he, of course, said it to me in a very crude terms. An aroused man has no conscience, which is very true. Right? Someone who is aroused has absolutely no conscience. Now, this was a type of sexual passion that gripped King David leading him to commit adultery with Bathsheba and ultimately the murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. How could, how could a man after God's own heart engage in such irrational and immoral action driven by such sexual passion? So it's a warning. It's a warning to us all, young and old, the real dangers of sexual sin. Now, one thing that is important for us to note is that it's the only sin that is recorded in the scripture 
where it is stated as a sin against your own body. Right? The only sin that is recorded in the scripture. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 tells us this. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now the statement sin against his own body can of course be interpreted in many ways. So when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthian church, you can take it in this context. It may mean that when you engage in sexual, sexual immorality with ritual prostitutes, remember, the people who were living in Corinth was living in a society where a type of idol worship was that you engage in ritual prostitution, right, with, uh, uh, with priestesses in the temple. And it can mean that. And when you do that, what it means is that you enter into a communion with demons. However, I believe that the more accurate interpretation of this statement is actually found in the verse thereafter, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. That as believers in Christ, that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit communes with our spirit. And therefore, sexual immorality, what it does, it violates the holiness and the sanctity of the temple of God. And that's our body. So therefore, sexual immorality hurts us at a very deep spiritual level. But one thing I need to uh, also mention here is that sexual immorality also hurts people at a very deep physical level. Physical level as well. Now, this is something that we must be aware of. God designed us as sexual beings, right? And let's make no qualms about that. That's what he designed us, as sexual beings. However, he designed sex within the bonds of marriage, right? Now, I'm just going to go into science a bit here. Science actually tells us and even confirms to us how sexual sins can harm us. It does so by damaging our brains, right? Whether it's premarital sex, adultery, viewing pornography, sexual sin actually alters our brain function. And that's what it does. And science has told this to us and proved it to us. And I'll, I'll tell you what it is, right? Uh, so just bear with me a bit. So I'm going to talk about hormones. Right? Now, there are two powerful hormones that are released when you engage in sexual activities. And these two hormones are known as oxytocin, that's one hormone, and vesopressin. These are two hormones. Now, oxytocin is referred to as, it's commonly referred to as the love hormone. Right? That's what it is. So therefore, when people engage with hugging and kissing, and that's the type of hormone that is released, that's oxytocin. And oxytocin, of course, gives people the opportunity to be empathetic, uh, to be bonding, to be relational, uh, and also to be generous. So therefore, it increases, it helps human bonding, and that's what oxytocin does. Now, vesopressin is another hormone, and what it does is it gives us or it helps people to numb the pain. That's what vesopressin is. But unfortunately, not fortunately, but unfortunately, fortunately, for us, in this, uh, if you look at human beings, these two hormones combine together. The concoction of these two hormones actually produces a combination where science says that it's, more, it's four times more powerful than morphine. Right? And what it does is that it binds us to the object of our sexual activity. So that is why 
when man and a woman in marriage engages in sexual activities, it binds us to our spouses. And that's another interpretation one can take from the book of Genesis, that two shall become one. So within the bonds of marriage, it binds the spouses one to another. And that's what these concoction of hormone does. And this is what interestingly research has found. This is what research has found. So what happens is that within the bonds of marriage, when it binds us, it binds us deeply together. Right? And research confirms to us and shows to us that it is the best predictor of human health, longevity, and well-being. So within the bonds of marriage, when it binds spouses together, research finds that, that marriage relationship is the best predictor of human health. And that's something that's surprising to me. If that is the case, if secular research has found that, why do people glamorize divorce? Why do people glamorize living together? Right? Why do they glamorize that? If research has actually found out, this is not spiritual research, right? Or religious research. This is what secular research has found, that within the bonds of marriage, that is the best predictor of health and well-being, a healthy relationship. However, the issue is when it's taken out of the context of marriage. And this is why the scripture tells us this, right? It messes us up. And science tells that it messes our brains. So engaging with things like pornography, sexual immorality, releases the same concoction of hormones, right? Vesopressin as well as uh, oxytocin. And it re <coughs> rewires our brain to the extent that, we, that those activities uh, connects those people to the activities that they were involved with. So it connects them to pornography. It connects them to sexual immorality. So much so that it becomes so addictive. And as I said earlier, it's four times more powerful than morphine. And there are two things that happens to believers when they engage in such situations. Number one, if they keep that as a matter of practice, they can rationalize their behaviors and therefore their conscience becomes seared. That can one thing that can happen to them. Or they can be wrecked with guilt and shame and they find it very, very difficult to break away from such practice. Now, given all of these things, what does the Bible tell us when people are placed in such situations? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, the Bible says, flee. Run away. Flee. Right? And that's the word that the scripture uses. Now, unfortunately, very, very unfortunately, David did just the opposite. In 2 Samuel chapter uh, 11, verses 1 to 5, we see several lingering rather than fleeing actions of David. Right? So if you have your scriptures, let's read 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. So it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, right? the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. 
for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. So when you read these few verses, you can see David's lingering actions rather than fleeing from the situation. And I have bolded those and written those in red. So what happened? Well, in verse 2, David saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. He saw. He lingered a bit more. And then what did it lead to? Well, so David sent and inquired about the woman. Verse 3. And then in verse 4, then David sent messengers and took her. And then finally, the sin bore fruit. What happened in verse 4 again? She came to him and he lay with her. So by lingering, instead of fleeing, his actions went from seeing to laying with her. Now these actions are hardly the actions of a man intending to turn away from sin. Unfortunately, right? So instead of fleeing, David lingered. And the scripture, scripture quite warns us quite explicitly of such dangers, the dangers of sexual sin. It hurts us at a very deep spiritual level. It hurts us at a very deep physical level. And it can bring down a man after God's own heart, a person like David. It can also bring down the wisest man in the scripture, King Solomon, who unfortunately had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I'm not sure how he managed that, right? He can bring down the man after God's own heart. He can bring down the wisest of men. He can bring down the young as well as the old. Gazing, lingering, even on material things that are sexual can play in our hearts and in our minds, right? And one thing you've got to understand it, looking at something, gazing on something for some time, it resides in your mind sometimes the whole day can play in your hearts and in your mind. And as I mentioned earlier, sexual activity, sexual thoughts, releases these types of hormones together. It makes such engagement quite addictive. And that's something that we have to be aware of. It's great within the bonds of marriage. That's what God has designed us for. But outside the bond of marriage, it actually damages our minds. Now, you may be interested to know and some of you university students, I'm not sure, I don't want you to put up your hands and say that this research is right or wrong, right? Don't do that. But a recent research amongst university students and found out that males think about sex 19 times a day. And females think about sex 10 times a day. Please don't put your hand up and say it's right, okay? <laughs> right? But that's what happens. That's what happens. How such thoughts can become addictive and can take hold of your thinking pattern. So what advice does the scripture give us? What does it tell us? As I said earlier, first the Bible tells us to flee. Run away. It actually uses the Greek word fugo. Fugo means to avoid something that is abhorrent. Take flight. Avoid something that's abhorrent. That's one thing the scripture does. Right? Just run away. Just turn away and run. To flee from sexual immorality. Just like Joseph did in Potiphar's house when he was seduced by Potiphar's wife. And secondly, the Bible tells us to actually break the cycle of thought by meditating and thinking of things that are virtuous and that are excellent to guard our hearts and our minds. Now, one thing we need to understand is that we become what we reflect on. 
right? Remember that we become what we reflect on. And that's what the scripture tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Meditate on these things. Flee and meditate. Flee and meditate is the advice that the scripture gives us. Now let's go on to 2 Samuels. Right? Now if you turn to 2 Samuels chapter 12, you can see now David is being rebuked by Nathan. After he committed the sin, Nathan the prophet approached David and rebuked him. And I would like to look at this particular chapter, chapter 12, in conjunction with Psalms chapter 51. Right? And just for you to know that Psalms 51 was a Psalms that were written by David after Nathan came and rebuked him. And that was written by David. So you need to read 2 Samuel chapter 12 in conjunction with Psalms 51. And there are four things I would like to briefly consider. First, David's inner struggle. Second, David's repentance. Third, the aftermath of David's sin. And fourth, the hope for the sinner. The hope for the sinner. So, with regards to David's inner struggle. Now, let's look at David's inner struggle. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 14, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 14, chapter 12, verse 14, you could see it suggests to us that this is just a suggestion that this child had already been born when Nathan confronted King David. So it's possible that it has been several months since this sexual immorality took place, certainly more than nine months if the child is already born. Now, during this period, there appears to be no visible repentance from David, right? The Bible does, of course, tell us what happened during that time period, what took place in David's life. However, you could actually get a glimpse of David's inner struggle during that period of time, David's inner struggle. And how do we get that? You get that when you read Psalms chapter, 50, sorry, Psalms chapter 51. First, if you read Psalms 51, there was constant pain due to sin. You can see that, Psalms 51 verse 8. There was no joy of salvation in David's life. Psalms 51 verse 12. There was a load of guilt that David bore constantly through that period of time. Psalms 51 verse 14. So wrecked with guilt, with pain of knowing what he had done, the lack of joy to, to a, due to a broken fellowship with the Lord, with Yahweh, God, right, was consuming David. That was the inner struggle in David's life. That was the burden that David bore. Now, let me tell you that it is during this time period that a person is quite vulnerable. Right? If there is no genuine repentance, no confrontation with their sin, and if this immorality becomes a practice that is difficult to break from, there is a problem. There, is a, uh, uh, there can be a, a, a situation where this person then begins to rationalize their sin and then their conscience becomes seared. And probably that would have happened to Solomon. 
because 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 4 tells us that the gross sexual misconduct of Solomon resulted in his 700 wives and 300 concubines turning his heart gradually away from God and Solomon's conscience became seared. Let's look at the four steps, David's repentance. Now when you look at Psalms chapter 51 in conjunction with 2 Samuel chapter 12, you can see that there are four steps involved in David's repentance. First, the first step required David to engage with something that I call deep introspection. It means to examine yourself, to examine your actions, your thoughts, how you feel and how your behavior has actually affected others, that deep introspection. Now, one thing that we know is in order to spur David to engage with such deep introspection, Nathan uh, started relating a fictitious story to David. And we see this fictitious story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. So I'll read this. This is what David said. Sorry, Nathan said to David. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, lay in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, David's reaction to the incident show how morally he was sensitive to that situation, to what was narrated to him by Nathan. Now, such moral sensitivity is very easy when it comes to the fault of others. Right? Very, very easy when it comes to the fault of others. It's always easier to see the moral fault in others. And you can see how quickly David passed judgment on the rich man. Very, very quickly. So when David saw the speck in the rich man's eyes, what did Nathan do? Immediately he turned the microscope onto David. And in verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. True repentance requires you to engage with your own introspection to understand your own behavior, your own actions, what you have done, what you have engaged in, and how your behaviors have affected others. It requires that deep introspection. So you could see here, this is typically what the Lord said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. What did the Lord say? And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes, but do not consider the plank that comes out of your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at a plank in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the 
plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So what it means here is that the Lord says, you hypocrite, engage in deep introspection. Look at your speck in your own eye. And that's what Nathan did. He related this little story, got David to be very sensitive to this moral, uh, immoral action of the rich man, and then David turned the microscope back to, sorry, Nathan turned the microscope to David. It required David to engage in introspection, deep introspection. So that was the first step that we see in David's repentance. Second, the second step is for David to recognize that he has sinned against God and God alone. And Psalms 51, verse 41. I said we're going to look at Psalms 51 in conjunction to 2 Samuel chapter 12. So Psalms 51, verse 41 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, although David's sin had serious consequences for Bathsheba, for her husband Uriah, who David killed and murdered, and eventually David's family, it had so much of consequences. Uh, ultimately, a sin of such nature, in that ma for that regard, any other sin is a sin against God and God alone. That's how serious sin is. It's a clear violation of God's law. It's a rebellion against God's rule for human nature, for human life. And what is God's rule for human life? To love your neighbor as yourself is a clear violation against that. And David recognized the enormity of his sin, of his immoral action, as a sin against God and God alone. And thirdly, David recognized the frailty of his human nature. And therefore, the need for him to change his attitude. Because in Psalms chapter 51, verses 5 to 6, this is what David says in Psalms 51, verses 5 to 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. He recognized the frailty of his human nature, how he was conceived in sin. But then he recognized that it's his responsibility to change his attitude. And he says, Behold, you desire truth in my inward part and in my hidden part. You desire that. So David knew that he had to change his attitude. So David recognized his frailty and the need to change his attitude. And recognizing that, recognizing his frailty and the need to change attitude, finally, David recognized that it is God alone who can clean our hearts and our minds. There's nothing that we can humanly do. There's nothing that we can give to God in order to eradicate this problem of immoral action. David recognized that. And that is why David says in Psalm 51 verse 16, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it to you. You do not delight in burnt offerings. David recognized that. No amount of sacrifice, no amount of burnt offerings can remove the guilt that he had. He knew that. It was finally God and God alone who can cleanse him from his sin. It is these steps that finally led to David to be a man with a broken and a contrite heart. And Psalms 51 verse 17 speaks of that contrite condition. It is in this condition that finally led the Lord to forgive David of his sin. So 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 13, this is what Nathan said to David. The Lord, the Lord God has put away your sin. 
And these are the four steps that David took with regards to his repentance. A deep introspection, to recognize that his sin is against God and God alone, recognize that his, his frail human nature, the need for him to change attitude, and finally, recognizing that God and God alone can clean his heart and his mind. He had to come to that state, a broken and a contrite man. What is the aftermath of David's sin? Just give me five minutes and I'll stop there. What is the aftermath of David's sin? Now, although David was truly, truly forgiven by God, <clears throat> still sin had its consequences. Still sin had its consequences and David had to face these consequences. Right? Remember one thing, when you engage in sin, sin has consequences. God sometimes doesn't remove those consequences. You have to go through that. God forgives you. That's for sure. And David had to face these consequences. So, and all of these consequences were predicted and prophesied by Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12. His son Absalom tried to overthrow David by force. That was predicted in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And in the process of doing so, he actually slept with David's concubines or his wives in open in order to bring disgrace to his own father. And that's what Absalom did. David's reputation was damaged. And Nathan said this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. By this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David's reputation and therefore God's reputation was damaged. So as I said, forgiveness of sin by the Lord does not necessarily eradicate the consequences of sin. Now I'd like to stop with this. Was all hope lost for David? Is there a hope for the sinner? Did this immorality with Bathsheba put an, avid, uh, put an uh, end to David's usefulness in the Lord's work and the Lord's kingdom? Was it an end of David's impact and influence? Now let me tell this to you. God can and is still able to use a repentant sinner like David. God is still able to do so. In fact, David says in Psalms 51 verses 12 to 13, that once I'm restored, once I'm upheld by the Lord, the Lord is able to use me to teach sinners the Lord's way, to bring sinners back to the Lord. And David recognized that. Once the Lord upholds me, once the Lord brings me back to him, he's able to use me to teach sinners their ways and bring them back to the Lord. So David was not discarded by the Lord. There is a hope for sinners. Now, this is indeed encouraging for any of you who are battling with the aftermath of sin. Right? In this case, it's the sin of sexual immorality. Now, let me leave with you the words of the Lord to his disciple, Peter. Now, the Lord foretold that Peter will deny him three times at his trial. And Peter, of course, being Peter, said, oh, no, right? I won't. Right? If all the others flee, not me. Lord, I will die with you. But the Lord said, no, Peter, you will deny me three times at my trial. And this came to pass. When David swore, he cussed, he denied the Lord three times when the Lord was tried by the high priest. But this is what the Lord said to David in Luke chapter 22, sorry, said to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 32. 
And these are the words I'd like to leave with you. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned back to me, right? When you have repented and returned back to me, go ahead and strengthen your brethren. Go strengthen your brethren. There is always a hope for sinners, right? And that's what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. David and Bathsheba's adultery, Nathan's rebuke, but finally the hand upon David's life. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to come before your presence and to know that we as believers have been cleansed by the blood of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, this morning as we come before you, we recognize the Lord that we are frail, that we are weak, that our human nature, O Lord, because of its fallen state, is weak. But Father God, we thank you that those of us who are trusted in you have the Holy Spirit in our lives, that our body is the temple of God. So we pray, O Lord, that we'll uphold our body in honor and in, uh, and in sanctity for your glory and for your honor. So we commit this morning and this time into your hands the Savior's precious and in his word name. Amen. Amen.